0: My soul sings out to the Lord. My heart exclaims the work of God, my deliverer. For God has seen the status of God's lowly servant. And rightly, from this time forward, all the generations will see that I was blessed. For the Great One has done magnificent things through me. I call upon the mystery of God's name. God's mercy is for those who honor God from generation to generation. God has shown the hand of justice by scattering the proud, humbling their haughty thoughts. God has brought down the powerful from their high places and lifted up all the lowly. God has filled the hungry with God's plenty and sent away the wealthy with empty hands. God has helped God's servant, Israel, to remember God's rich mercy in accordance to the covenant made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his children.
1: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who love musical theater and those who don't. You can suss out who belongs into which camp as soon as the orchestra begins to creep in behind the dialogue and the main character pauses to step center stage, generally people have one of two reactions. Either their eyes light up in anticipation, or they let out a groan. Personally, I am in the pro-musical camp. But I also get why musicals aren't everyone's cup of tea, why they make some people feel a bit uncomfortable. Because they're emotional and they're absurd. They, in what world, after all, is there an orchestra following you wherever you go? In what social setting is it at all appropriate to suddenly break out into song? And in the recent invention of the flash mob has proved just how absurd musicals really are. Have you seen these videos of the bystanders' faces when they realize that they are suddenly caught up in a crowd that is dancing all synchronized together? Yes, musicals require us to suspend our notions of what's possible and enter the world of the impossible. And that's the same leap we take this morning when we read Luke's account of the Christmas story. You see, over the two chapters in which he tells the Christmas story, there are four times that the main character stops, steps center stage, and bursts into song. In our reading this morning, we hear the lyrics of the first of these musical interludes, the solo belonging to the leading lady of our drama, Mary of Nazareth. Later on, Zachariah will get to sing a number at the birth of his son, John, the moment his tongue is finally loosed. And then in a scene that takes place on a hillside, a choir of angels breaks into song, maybe with synchronized dancing, announcing the birth of Christ to a cast of shepherds. And last, for the grand finale, Simeon sings his famous farewell song, bidding the world adieu after finally seeing God's promises fulfilled in the Christ child. So much singing. But first, let's set the stage. The story begins in the kingdom of Judea, in the time of King Herod. And the curtain opens on Zechariah, an elderly priest and his faithful yet barren wife, Elizabeth. Year after year, they have prayed for a child, but year after year, the cradle by the fireplace and Elizabeth's arms remain empty. Then one morning, as Zachariah is burning incense in the temple alone, the angel Gabriel suddenly appears, telling him that Elizabeth will give birth to a child and he's to name him John. Understandably Zachariah questions the plausibility of this prediction given the couple's age and in response to his unbelief Gabriel binds up Zachariah's tongue rendering him speechless Then comes scene two Gabriel flies on away from Judea to Galilee to the village of Nazareth and the house of a teenage girl named Mary to make his second miraculous pregnancy announcement. And just like Zachariah, Mary also questions the plausibility of Gabriel's prediction. She's a virgin. But this time, Gabriel doesn't respond by rendering her mute. Instead, he assures her, with God, nothing is impossible. Even your cousin Elizabeth is expecting in her old age. She, who was said to be barren, is now in her sixth month. And then the second scene closes with Gabriel again taking to the sky and Mary taking to the hills. She's a pregnant teen on the run, running away from home, running away from her parents and her boyfriend, running away from the watchful eyes of her town to Elizabeth's house, her cousin. And then comes scene three. This is the final scene leading up to our reading this morning, Mary's famous solo. When she arrives at Elizabeth's house, finally, she is no doubt exhausted. Her feet are swollen, her belly is grumbling, and she raps on the door. And then as the door creaks open, there's Elizabeth. Just as Gabriel said, she's standing there with the gray hair of an old woman, yet the glow of a young expectant mother. And it must have been in that moment Mary came to know for sure. It must really be, as the angel told me, the world really is turning upside down. And with that, the women throw their arms around each other, and the baby John leaps in the womb, spurring Elizabeth to prophesy that Mary is carrying the Christ child. Now, cue the orchestra, turn on the spotlight, get ready, because here it comes, Mary's big solo, that famous song that would later be set and reset to a million different tunes, that worldwide hit that would earn her the title of redemptrix mater, The one and only Magnificat. Now, if you were paying attention to our reading this morning in the video, you might have noticed that the words aren't what you might expect to hear from the mouth of a teenage girl. Especially a teenage girl who's just found out she's pregnant with the Son of God. If this were a Broadway musical, young Mary would sing of her ambivalence, her joy at being favored by God, and yet her fear about the tasks that lie ahead. And in our modern world, we'd expect a pregnant teen to talk about, well, being pregnant, or being a teenager, or even the child she's carrying. But instead, in Luke's drama, Mary sings of the goodness of God, How generation after generation, God has a history, a track record of saving and liberating us, paying special attention to the lowly and the oppressed. She sings not about her pregnancy or even the baby, but about a world turned upside down where unjust rulers are toppled from their thrones and the poor are raised up where the hungry are filled with good things and the rich are sent away empty. It's strangely reminiscent of the finale in Les Miserables in which the entire cast sings, do you hear the people sing, lost in the shadow of the night? It is the music of a people who are climbing to the light. For the wretched of the earth, there is a flame that never dies. Even the darkest night will end, and the sun will rise. They will live again in freedom in the garden of the Lord. They will walk behind the plowshare. They will put away the sword. The chain will be broken, and all men will have their reward. I told you I was in the pro-musical theater camp, didn't I? In any case... Her song is not the sweet lullaby of a meek and mild girl. It is a revolutionary anthem of a rebellious teenager intended on upending unjust systems. She's not singing about the new child she's bringing forth. She's singing about the new world she's bringing forth, the kingdom of God, an upside-down world where teenage girls become the mother of God. And where virgins, as old women, virgins and old women, give birth. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who was executed by the Nazis, said, "The song of Mary is at once the most passionate, the wildest, and one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung." This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is a passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary. This song is a hard, strong, and inexorable song about collapsing the thrones of the world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. It's so revolutionary, in fact, that during the 1800s, When the British ruled in India, singing or reciting it in church was prohibited. And in the 1970s, Argentinian authorities banned the Magnificat too, after the mothers of the disappeared began to sing it as a call for nonviolent resistance to the ruling military junta. And then again in the 1980s, it was banned in Guatemala and El Salvador for similar reasons because it threatened the good and decent order of society. Even here in the States, this radical anthem is still silenced today. But here, it's in a much more covert way. Because why is it that in the revised Common Lectionary, it only appears in brackets as an optional reading once every three years? Why is it that about half of evangelicals say their church has never even discussed it or read it? Why is it that in contemporary Christian settings of the Magnificat, the lyrics begin and end with Mary praising God, leaving out the parts that are bad news for the rich, bad news for the well-fed, bad news for the powerful? We're still silencing Mary not only because her radical lyrics are bad news for most of us, but because she's singing about a world that's even more absurd than the world of musical theater. An impossible, topsy-turvy, upside-down world where every day is opposite day, where kings are born in stables and ride on donkeys, where women are prophets and men are made to be tongue-tied, where even death itself is mocked and turned upon its head. This is the world she sings of, and it's the world that inspired the Feast of Fools. It's a celebration that persisted in the early church for centuries, in which this great reversal Mary sings about is acted out in both churches and on the streets. Each year, the Feast of Fools would begin with the singing of the Magnificat, in which the presiding clergy would hand over their staff to a low-level layperson or a servant, electing them to be mock patriarch, head of the fe- festivities. And this festival served as a brief social revolution, a time for a reversal of status and, ro- and role, for revelry and absurdity. theatrics lay brothers and servants would put on church vestments inside out they would hold their liturgical books upside down they would blow ashes in each other's faces and waft foul smelling incense into the sanctuary they would turn the good and proper liturgy into gibberish this subversive festival persisted until the medieval church condemned it in the 12th century and good and decent order of the church and of the world was reinstated. It's true. Mary's vision upends good and decent order in the church and in our world. It's political. And yet, she is the visionary elected to bring a new world into being. For this, she earns the title in Eastern churches as Theotokos, Theo, meaning God, and tokos, meaning bearer, or the one who gives birth to God. How absurd is it that the one to birth God and a new world would be a poor teenage girl? But perhaps God chose her because if an ordinary girl like Mary could give birth to the living God, Perhaps it's not so absurd that we might do the same. Perhaps we too carry Christ inside of us, and we are called to bring him forth into our world today, into the cold and the messy places of our lives, just like a stable in Bethlehem long ago, and into the unjust and violent systems of our world, places of oppression and empire. Perhaps if an ordinary girl like Mary could become Theotokos, maybe we too could be God bearers. Maybe we could give birth to Christ this advent, here and now, birthing more peace and justice in the world, birthing a new kingdom where women are free to take center stage where prostitutes and children are honored and where the hungry are the first on the list for the banquet. Perhaps it is just as Gabriel told Mary, with God, nothing is impossible. Not even spontaneous singing or even the upside down world inaugurated by Jesus's incarnation. This world we bring into being and we call the kingdom of God. Amen.